Manufacturing Descent. Since 1996, this is hell. Whiteness is a relatively new concept that is predated by racism, which oddly is predated by white supremacy. Yes, white supremacy, the concept that white people are somehow better than everybody else. That came before racism, the discriminatory practice based on race, and all those ideas are relatively new. You know that well-meaning uncle or aunt of yours who is so frustrated with racism then ends the conversation with, well, there's always been racism, as if nothing can be done about it because it is as natural as the sky being blue. Well, they're wrong. They're very wrong. Racism is a recent invention, and you would be surprised who simply accepted that racism. For instance, that noted man of peace, Mahatma Gandhi, who once said of vengeance substituting for justice an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. That same Gandhi, who would later be applauded by Nelson Mandela for Gandhi's opposition to apartheid, had earlier said of South African white minority rule, quote, the English and the Indians spring from a common stock called the Indo-Aryan, and the white race in South Africa should be the predominating race. So where did white supremacy, racism, and whiteness come from? Why, after so much time on Earth, did humans suddenly decide to impose restrictions, cruel, brutal, and inhumane restrictions against others based on the color of their skin? We'll try to figure out exactly what made humanity so freaking racist in a few when we speak with freelance writer and editor Robert P. Baird, who wrote The Guardian article, one of their long reads, The Invention of Whiteness, The Long History of a Dangerous Idea. Robert has worked at The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Harper's, Esquire, and Chicago Review. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Bobby Baird, B-A-I-R-D, and find out more about Robert at his website, robertpbaird.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz producing this morning's show. If it's Monday, it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how was your weekend? My weekend was good. Yeah, I got together with some friends for uh, for May Day, which was nice. Did you see the uh, evidence of what happened here this weekend? No, no. Oh, you should uh, look out there. I think you'll see about 150 beer cans. Okay. <laughs> cool. I, I, none of them were emptied by me. Uh <laughs> Although I, I think I had a good weekend. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. There's part of my weekend I don't remember, and the part I don't remember, I've been filled in by others, and it sounds like I had a whole bunch of harmless fun. Great. <laughs> <laughs> More importantly than any of that, Jess, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what medieval trade is coming back soon? <laughs> what medieval trade is coming back soon? Let's hope it's not barbering. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. And special thanks to Priva for showing your support. Priva D for showing your support over the weekend. As well as Mark M, Jeremy W, and Cherish O. Cherish, thank you for your tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell. So thanks again, Priva, Mark, Jeremy, and Cherish. We really appreciate your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following Robert uh, Baird. You, 
again, the question from hell is, what medieval trade is coming back soon? What medieval trade is coming back soon? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is spinach, because apparently there's a bank holiday in Britain this weekend. <laughs> Go figure, who knew? <laughs> According to an article at the UK's Salisbury Journal, uh, with the headline, Six f foods to cure your hangover this bank holiday weekend. Magnesium is one nutrient that is often depleted during a session of drinking. So magnesium-rich foods such as spinach will help to replenish your magnesium levels. Spinach also has anti-inflammatory properties, so, make it, so makes a good basis for a meal to help you get over your hangover. Try adding it to the morning smoothie as part of a lighter breakfast or even a salad for lunch. As for the bank holiday, people will be celebrating in Salisbury. Everybody gets Friday off, and the banks are closed because they are commemorating VE Day, as in Victory in Europe Day, the anniversary of Germany's unconditional surrender in 1945, ending the Second World War. That makes this week's hangover cure. I don't think I put the rest of this in here. Sorry about that. Spinach, because the British love drinking to the defeat of the Nazis so much, they must take a day off to do so. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell, and you can help us with our horrible business model. Help out your friends here at thisishell.com by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sure, we give you hell for free Monday through Thursday every day here at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. But Friday's show at the same time is exclusively for Patreon subscribers. And it features a new monologue from me each week as well as an interview from our nearly 25-year archive of shows. That is an interview that is currently available anywhere else but on Patreon, because currently at our website, our archives only go back to about 2015. That is something that we are rebuilding right now with your Patreon support. The conversation we featured on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, which you can now hear at patreon.com slash thisishell, was from way back in June of 1999 when we spoke with Trinity Foundation founder, a follower of what he believed closely resembled first century Christianity, you know, before Christianity lost its way in the second century, apparently, according to our guest, Ole Anthony. Ole despised televangelists so much that he sent his flock off to dig through the garbage where the TV preachers did their banking to find dirt on televangelists, and they did, even shutting down ministries that were clearly nothing more than a scam, finding tons of evidence in their bank's dumpsters. And like we said during last week's show, Ole Anthony's obituary in last week's New York Times may very well be the most bizarre obit you will have ever read in the New York Times. Meanwhile, despite being fully aware that everyone cannot wait to return to whatever normal was or is I do not want to return to that normal. Normal meant being complicit in climate change and the globalization that quickly and efficiently spread a deadly pandemic that has killed millions worldwide. If we return to that normal of denialism about our role in warming the planet and unleashing plagues, we'll be right back here in no time, locking our lives up in our homes and only venturing outside with the appropriate protective gear as we await another round of vaccinations for yet another variant or virus that was unleashed when another untouched part of our natural world is claimed by the demands of constant economic growth. And by the way, advertisers are trying to get us all to rush right back into that denialism of our role in globalization and climate change. There's even an ad right now asking people to share their intense, extreme ways they are returning to normal in 2020. Yeah, this ad just came out, and for some reason they're telling you that it's still 2020. I think advertisers really want you to think that we're going to be in 2020 for the rest of our lives. One example they give in this ad is in showing how your life can be so more, much more intense and extreme when we return to normal. One example they give is putting a kiddie pool made of God knows what kinds of plastics, and God probably has as much of a clue as we do, as what is actually in supposedly recyclable plastics is an industry trade secret 
the example they give of an awesome way to return to normal is filling up a kiddie pool, putting it in the back of a, a pickup truck, filling it with water, and driving around with people in the pool. In other words, completely unnecessary burning of fossil fuels, a truck bed full of yahoos inhaling the carbon monoxide coming from the tailpipe of the pickup truck while frolicking in a pool that will eventually be burned in some far-off place contributing to climate change instead of ever being recycled. That's the normal we cannot return to unless we have a suicide wish. That's the normal they want us to return to, a normal where our actions have no consequences other than clicks and shares of our outrageous acts of carelessness, all of which can be turned into more profits for the already rich. But you can only hear our talk from nearly 22 years ago with Ole Anthony about his religion and anti-televangelist crusade and my fear of returning to a normal where we learned absolutely nothing from a global pandemic by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. All subscribers not only get the extra show every Friday, but you also get five bucks off of all of our merchandise, which you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Coming up, the idea of whiteness is not as old as you may think it is. We will also have This Week in Rotten History. Some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what medieval trade is coming back soon. And we'll tell you what's coming up on the rest of this week's shows here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell there's this idea that racism has always been with us has always been around that it's it's natural if you will for people to judge one another based on the color of their skin and once that judgment is delivered it comes with a whole set of laws that discriminate based on race but in fact that kind of racism and the concept of whiteness are relatively new phenomena and not in any way natural at all here to help us understand white supremacy Racism and whiteness. Freelance writer and editor Robert P. Baird wrote the Guardian article, The Invention of Whiteness, The Long History of a Dangerous Idea. Welcome to This Is Hell, Robert. Hi, thanks for having me on. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Bobby Baird. That's B-A-I-R-D. And you can find out more about Robert at robertpbaird.com. You start by reminding us how in 2008, a satirical blog called Stuff White People Like became a brief but boisterous sensation. The founder of the blog was an aspiring comedian and Ph.D. dropout named Christian Lander. Looking back now at Stuff White People Like Today, uh, what marks the site's age is neither the peculiarities of its irony nor the broad generalities of its targets. What has changed, changed in ways that date stuff people like unmistakably, is the cultural backdrop. Ten years ago, whiteness suffused mainstream culture like a fog, through perva- though pervasive to the point of omnipresence. It was almost nowhere distinct. In the years since, especially among the sort of people who might have once counted themselves as fans of Lander's blog, again, stuff white people like, the public significance of whiteness has undergone an almost wholesale reevaluation. Far from being a punchline for an anxious, cathartic joke, whiteness is now earnestly invoked like neoliberalism or populism as a central driver of cultural and political affairs. Is whiteness... no longer a joke, a laughing matter. In retrospect, what role do you think whiteness being a joke played in, within a decade, whiteness being changed from being seen as a joke to being understood as an existential threat? Do you think that being a joke kind of helped it evolve into being understood as a threat? I'm not sure I would say that. I think the bigger impact, honestly, is probably the election of Barack Obama first and then the election of Donald Trump after him, which, of course, are two events that are intimately related to each other. Um, But I do think that the way in which whiteness was portrayed in a blog like stuff white people like shows us kind of how whiteness appeared at the end of this long period that lasted, you know, about four decades, where people would sometimes talk about colorblind uh, racism or uh, structural racism. Um, And it was just this kind of sense that white people were a little bit, they didn't like to talk about whiteness. They didn't really want it, made them uncomfortable. Um, You know, Christian Lander, he would always talk about how this was really tied up with class. I mean, he was mocking a certain kind of affluent, urban, generally younger white person. So he wasn't trying to make a blanket statement about all so-called white people around the world. 
But there was this kind of sense of like, oh, we don't really want to talk about this. We don't really want to do this. I think some people sort of naively saw in the election of Barack Obama, at least at first, like, oh, great, America gets to be post-racial now. We don't really have to deal with this anymore. We've overcome our long racist history. And I think what we've seen, of course, you know, in the 13 years since Obama was elected was that was an entirely naive uh, conviction that that was what was happening. There has people have talked about this for years and years about this inevitability of Democratic Party rule because of changing demographics in the United States and more and more people who are Latinx, who are Hispanic being in the population and voting. Do you believe that we are on a constant upward trajectory with more and more understanding that this there has been a race, a major change when it comes to race, that we are on a path of doing more and more to ameliorate racial inequality? Because I'm concerned because, as we've seen with the Hispanic inevitability, that doesn't appear that that will be the case. So is there an inevitability that we will always be on a trajectory towards more and more work in ameliorating racial inequality? I think maybe there's two questions there. One is this kind of demographic question that you allude to, right? Which is, is there going to be a point in time at which, to put it frankly, like white people are a minority, um, politically speaking, so they start to lose power because they can't determine the outcome of elections. I think that has been the great hope in the Democratic Party, as you say, for decades. Um, what that leaves out of account is that if you actually look at the 350-year-long history of whiteness, uh, that category has actually proved quite flexible and sort of tactically so. So the very beginning, you can have Ben Franklin in you know, 1750 talking about how only the English and the Saxons make up the bulk of the white people on the face of the earth. Everyone else, there are all these other categories he has, but a lot of people who we might think of as white today, he categorized as swarthy. Over time, that category of whiteness expands, um, and the original sort of what we think was a white Anglo-Saxon, you know, Protestant population starts to kind of grudgingly allow in other groups into their this growing definition of whiteness. And, you know, I think we see that happening even today. So uh, in the 2020 election, there was some surprise about what happened, say, down in Florida, right? Why are these, uh, why are Hispanics starting to vote um, for the Republican Party? And I think there have been some arguments put forward, which are somewhat convincing that a lot of people who identify as Hispanic are actually also identify as white, and that that's one path that we might see. So this, what we've seen as a sort of inevitability in demographic terms is actually not at all inevitable, um, because the boundaries of what counts as a white person are constantly in flux and constantly changing. Which is really weird, because when you think about whiteness, when you think about racism, you don't think about inclusion as much as you think about exclusion. So can, uh, what, right. can whiteness continue if it's, a, if it's on a path of exclusion? Do, d does whiteness need inclusion? Does whiteness constantly need more recruits to continue whiteness? It's a great question. I think, you know, certainly in the United States, whiteness has very often defined itself against blackness. So the major sort of criterion was to be white was not to be black. The black people were put at the bottom of the pyramid. And so then everyone else is kind of left in between. And there's these rooms for tactical accommodations. Like, are we going to count this person as white? Are we not going to count that person? And in fact, if you go back to the 1910s and 1920s, you can see a whole series of legal cases that reached the Supreme Court where, you know, in quick succession, you have a Japanese person say, well, I, I count as white, right? I should count as white. The Supreme Court says, no, 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 no. You have to be Caucasian to count as white. And then a person from India sues and says, well, I should count as white because I come from Caucasian stock. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't mean Caucasian in that sense. We mean what an ordinary person would think of as Caucasian. So you get these kind of this circular logic, which defines whiteness from the very beginning, um, running up against the, you know, the kind of very technical legal definitions that the, that the Supreme Court is trying to define. So is whiteness then a practice, uh, an, an act? Is it a, a class that you can attain? Is it something that, that it isn't, it, it's something that is, that you practice, something that you actually engage in? Yeah, W.E.B. Du Bois called it a religion, you know, which is, of course, an analogy and a metaphor, but I think it's actually a pretty good one, the more that I think about it. Um, because it is a practice. It's not just purely, you know, we, I say in the piece, it's an idea, it's not a fact. 
because we want to remind people that this is not a biological reality. But like a religion, it is based on practices, right? It is based on norms. It is based on laws, um, all of which are dedicated to this proposition that the class of people called white is better than everybody else. And again, in different times and places, what that looks like in real concrete terms is going to be different. It's not like there's a single abiding definition of whiteness that lasts from 1675 until 2021. It changes all over the place. But that basic presumption of white supremacy is key to the religion of whiteness. So can I not practice whiteness or is that whiteness imposed upon us so it's impossible not to practice whiteness? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a white person. I can't wake up tomorrow and say, guess what? I'm not going to be white anymore. I choose to opt out of this. And the reason I can't do that is because the whole world is structured around these terms. And if I decide that on myself, it might mean certain things, small things in my own life, but the world is still going to see me as white. It's still going to give me the advantages, you know, that pertain to being white. And so it doesn't really help anybody to just wake up tomorrow and sort of pull a Rachel Dolezal, right? Say, ah, forget it. I'm not going to. I just don't want any part of this. Um, so that's not really an option. I think that we need to very quickly remind ourselves that it's not just that we can wake up tomorrow. I mean, yes, in theory, if all the white people in the world tomorrow woke up and said, we're done with this, then that would work. But that's not how history happens. And you point out a, a Pew poll that found that half of white Americans thought there was too much discussion of racial issues. And a similar proportion suggested that seeing racism where it didn't exist was a bigger problem than not seeing racism where it did. So half of all white people in the U.S. believe there's too much race talk, and the real problem isn't racism as much as it is saying something is racist, With which both those two things, they kind of sound like the same thing to me. But white people do not want to talk about race. Why? What makes white people not want to talk about race? What are they trying to avoid discussing? Uh, I think, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the book White Fragility, but I do think there is something to that idea that there's a, a sense that pe- white people don't want to talk about the privileges that pertain to being whiteness. You know, everybody, once you get to a certain age, at least, thinks that their life has been difficult. You know the challenges that have gone into your life. You realize, like, how you've had to struggle. You don't want somebody coming along and telling you, like, oh, well, actually, it's been easy for you because you've been white. Right. So people do take a real kind of just baseline offense at that idea. Um I think also, though, we should remember that this is a real conscious political strategy on the part of Republicans and, and even Democrats to a certain extent in this country. Um, as part of the reaction to the civil rights movement, right, it became very clear that one way to oppose civil rights, it was not, it, it, they had a hard time because they couldn't oppose civil rights explicitly. They couldn't come out and say like, no, 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 we don't want to, uh, you know, give equal rights to people of all racial categories. So they very quickly, by the early, late 70s, early 1980s, hit on this strategy of kind of what people call colorblind uh, racism, which is basically saying, like, we don't see color at all. We don't talk about color. And so therefore, we can't even do things like have uh, what used to be called minority quotas, right? And we can't have race-conscious policies because to bring up a race-conscious policy is to reintroduce racism into the system. This is one of the great legal innovations of Antonin Scalia. Um, he said, you know, if you want to avoid this, then you, you can't talk about race at all. Um, whereas, of course, people who had been negatively affected by racism um, and whose ancestors have been negatively affected by racism for 300, 400 years said, well, no, 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 you can't just flip a switch and tomorrow wake up and say we're done with racism. You've built up all of these institutional and structural advantages. And of course, those are going to persist. You can't just decide we're going to stop talking about racism um, and, and have that be it, because these differences persist in the way that neighborhoods are drawn. They persist in the you know, median amounts of income and net wealth. Um, and those don't just go away just because you decide that today we're a colorblind society. I want to get your thoughts on white fragility real quick, because far too many people I know who are actually excited, actually excited about voting for Joe Biden. I mean, I get voting for Joe Biden, but actually Mm -hmm. excited about it. Like they couldn't wait to go vote for Joe Biden. They're telling me I should be reading white fragility. What why should I what would you warn me against? I just think that, you know, your time is better off spent really digging into some of the history of the way that whiteness 
and white supremacy has developed in this country. I mean, I think we we are taught far too little about racial history in this country. Um, you know, I'm 43 years old. I learned basically none of this in my high school or even my college education, um, despite going to, you know, what I felt like were pretty decent schools. Um, you know, I think that you see one of the things that's really interesting is you see, especially on the right right now, a lot of consternation at talk about white supremacy and whiteness. And they all kind of throw up their hands and say, oh, my gosh, this is this new woke speak coming out of that, the academy. It's, you know, the universities are just throwing this stuff at us. They're inventing new terms. And if you actually dig into the history and you look at what's going on, talk of white supremacy is really old. I mean, it goes back, I think, to 1824. And as I pointed out in my piece, that's 80 years before the first time that the word racism gets used in the English language. So talk of white supremacy is not something that was invented five years ago. This is something that was invented in the 19th, early 19th century. So, but I, in your uh, writing, you talk about how white supremacy predates racism. What should that reveal to us about our understanding of both? Well, yeah, and, you know, I don't want to lean too heavily on this, but part of this is a rebuttal to the people who say that white supremacy is this kind of newfangled idea um, that the radicals, you know, pushing critical race theory, trying to shove down our throats, they just invented it yesterday, and they're trying to poison our children. It's like, no, no, no. If you go back and you look at the way that the Democratic Party in 1901 was talking about rewriting the Alabama state constitution, it was explicitly dedicated to white supremacy. The whole point was let's rewrite this so that we can enforce white supremacy in this state using those terms. If you look at Loving versus Virginia, which was the famous case that said, you know, you can no longer have laws that prohibit white people from marrying so-called non-white people. Uh, they explicitly rejected those laws saying that those laws are an expression of white supremacy. So, Part of it is to kind of remind people that this is an old and very well-established usage, and this is something that has the struggle for racial justice has been fighting for a very long time. Um, but I think also it's worth remembering that I think one of the big lies that the religion of whiteness, if I can call it that, um, tries to tell us is that whiteness and race is at some fundamental level a real thing. And a corollary of that is that it has to be symmetrical. So that, like, every person has to have a racial identity. And in fact, until 2000, uh, the, the U.S. Census basically said you could only choose one racial category. In 2000, they changed that and said you can choose multiple. But everybody had to assign themselves to one of five racial categories. And that sort of idea of symmetry, that this is like something that every person had one and one only of, that's one of the real lies that racism, you know, that, that whiteness and racism has talked about throughout history. And so I kind of want to remind people that there's a, there's a real asymmetry to the, to the history of whiteness and the history of other racial categories in this country. On this idea that you were pointing out of W.E.B. Du Bois, who said that uh, he called whiteness the new religion of whiteness, uh, to what extent do you think white people don't want to talk about whiteness or race because of that religious belief that questioning whiteness and ameliorating racial inequality are a threat to their religion, their belief system, and the understanding of the power that not only controls the world, but a power in which they not only have faith, they worship? Do they not question racism? because whiteness is their religion. There's a political scientist named Ashley Jardina who's done some really interesting work um, about people who identify as white. And she calls, you know, they have what she calls like a strong white identification. They have a strong white consciousness. And one of the things that she found is that the people who most strongly identify as white have the strongest consciousness of being white they like being white because of the white privilege. It's not the case that they're saying, I like to be white and I'm just like everybody else. When she asked them to respond in open-ended surveys, they would say, I'm glad I was born white. It gives me certain advantages. It, makes my, it helps me with my life. So there is certainly some people who like to be white because of what whiteness promises them, right? It promises them some of these advantages. Um, I think whether they're going to admit that in public is a different question, of course, because everybody, as I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of people don't like to be challenged and they don't like to be told you've had an easy life when in fact, from their own perspective, it looks like it was very hard indeed. Um, so I think there's, you know, that 
that some of it. I think also just like it's in a way it's this kind of zombie category that a lot of us are living with and we don't quite know what to do with it. You know, part of the reason why I wanted to write this piece is because I felt like unlike in the case of climate change, where we all or most of us recognize like, look, the problem is that there's too much carbon dioxide in the air and that's heating the earth. We don't even have a really consistent sense, I think, of whether or not we want to live in a world where whiteness exists and is kind of an innocuous racial category alongside all the others, or whether we want to live in a world where we say, actually, whiteness is not a going concern. It's not a relevant identity. Did whiteness lead to slavery? And was that the point, an attempt at finding a justification for no-wage labor? Uh, the other way around. So slavery, I think, led to whiteness. There's, you know, there's been a historical debate about this, but I think the evidence at this point is pretty clear Uh, Not everybody would agree, but I think it's, in my perspective, it's pretty clear that slavery comes first and that what happens is uh, you have these certain, you know, mostly English plantation owners working in the Caribbean and in the American colonies. Um, At first, they hire a lot of indentured European servants. That was the original labor class. Um, But it quickly became, you know, word got back to England and to Europe that working in these colonies was pretty terrible and that the conditions were pretty awful. And a lot of, a lot of the indentured servants weren't even making it to the end of their seven year terms. Um, and so they, the plantation owners needed more labor. And at that point, the transatlantic slave trade was already starting to happen. It was being facilitated by the Spanish, by the Portuguese, by the Dutch. Um, and so they could buy slaves. The problem that they had was that under English law, you weren't supposed to own another human being. Um, but sort of luckily for them and unluckily for the enslaved Africans, um, there was an exception made for prisoners of war. And because the enslaved Africans were, were considered to be heathens or infidels, they were treated as the perpetual enemies of Christianity. And so there's this kind of religious loophole that allowed them to be purchased and allowed them to be used on the plantations. Um, at first, the uh, the English plantation owners and they considered they what they tried to do is they tried to give the their indentured servants some special privileges to make sure the indentured servants wouldn't gang up with the enslaved Africans to try to overthrow them right because especially in the Caribbean colonies um, the plantation owners were outnumbered by their servants and by their enslaved Africans. Over time, what happened was they went from calling the uh, the indentured servants Christians to calling them white. And that's where we get the shift into whiteness as a racial identity, um, which was the kind of category that got these special privileges that the enslaved Africans did not get. So is this kind of a colonial tactic of divide and conquer, except in this case, it targets divisions along racial rather than ethnic or other group lines? Was racism a purposeful program by the powerful, the owning class to divide the working class, if you will? It was exactly that, yep. What they were really afraid of was was events like Bacon's Rebellion in 1676 in Virginia, where you basically had indentured European servants, you had enslaved Africans, you had freed Africans, all fighting against the colonial government there. And they said, this is no good. And you point out that the idea was to buy off the allegiance of indentured Europeans with a set of entitlements that, however meager, set them above enslaved Africans. Toward the end of the 17th century, the scheme witnessed a significant shift. Many of the laws that regulated slave and servant behavior began to descri- uh, describe the privileged class as whites and not as Christians. So, so did the law cause racism or did racism make the law racist? Because it's a chicken and egg thing like we were talking about earlier when it comes yeah, to slavery I mean- and racism. Right. And, you know, I'm wary of making it too precise because this is like real history, right? This is things are happening. And so it's not like you can trace it to a single um, perfect moment. Um, One historian has called it an unthinking decision. Um, But what you can see in these colonial laws, especially in the Caribbean, is that laws that once spoke of giving privileges to Christians in the next revision start talking about giving privileges to whites. They won't change anything else except for the change from Christian to white. And so why does that happen? Well, one reason that happens, and a kind of key reason that happens, is because you have Anglican and Quaker missionaries coming to the, coming to the islands and saying, if you're going to have these enslaved Africans here, you are duty-bound as Christians to bring them into the faith. So, if, you know, on the Anglican side, it means you have to baptize them. 
the Quakers don't have baptism, but you have to kind of induct them into the faith. That created a problem for the plantation owners, because if you have now these Africans who have been Christianized, right, who have been brought into the Christian faith, well, then do they get the same privileges that you were previously giving to your indentured servants? And so that's why they make this switch, or at least that's what historians believe, and I, I follow this interpretation, this shift to whiteness as the relevant category for the privileges. And I couldn't help but think when I was reading that how so many people had were converted to Christianity, not out of a, say, a sense of you know understanding of Christianity more than they were just looking for insurance to not be turned into slaves. So did capitalism need to create racism leading to slavery to succeed? Uh, I don't, you know, it's hard to say, to say that kind of counterfactual could have done otherwise. I'll just say that it played a crucial role in giving us the capitalism that we got. So you can't tell the story of uh, plantation capitalism and, and the development of capitalism in the 17th and 18th centuries without racism being a key role in that, in that scheme. So white people who do not like to discuss race and whiteness, they're often the same people who do not like to discuss class either. What is it about white people who do not like to talk about race or whiteness also shying from class? Is there something that is connected there? Um, I'm sure there is, you know, and I'm sure it goes every, it goes all the way up and down the scale, right? From the fact that we don't actually learn a lot about history in this country. We don't understand where we've come from. We tend to kind of imagine that we've been born into the world on the day that we arrived here and everything is brand new and fresh and we can just like start from scratch essentially and pretend like our history didn't happen. Um, but I also, again, I do think that there's a real psychological component to being told well, things are easier for you. And, I've, you know, just having, from having conversations with people, people take real offense at, at that. They, they take real umbrage at the idea that somehow their life, which they know to have been difficult, was made easier. Um, and, you know, I think in some parts it's also a lack of imagination to understand what things might have been like for other people who had it more difficult. Um, but there's a whole range of reasons. You know, I think it's, it's a little bit difficult to talk in two grand uh, terms about what, what causes these uh, attitudes. So uh, you also write how, as though aware of their own guilty conscience, the evangelists of the religion of whiteness were al always desperate to prove that it was something other than mere prejudice, where the Bible still held sway, they bent the story of Noah's son Ham into a divine apologia for white supremacy. When anatomy and anthropology gained prestige in the 18th and 19th centuries, they cited pseudoscientific markers of racial difference, like the cephalic index and the norma verticalis. Verticalis. Uh, when, psychology, when psychology took over in the 20th, they told themselves flattering stories about divergences in IQ. Was racism then institutionalized through science and the social sciences? And to what extent has science had any success at de-racializing it so it does not support white supremacy and privilege anymore? Yeah, I mean, certainly science was a big part of it, but I'd say even at a deeper level, there was just this continuous effort to prove that race was real. Right. That these racial differences were real. And that's why I say, you know, if it's if you're in a place that's going to listen to the Bible where you have Bible believing Christians um, who don't care about science, well, then you talk about Noah's son, Ham, and you make that the story. Um, if you're in a place where what's really important and what's really exciting is anatomy or anthropology, then you appeal to those sciences. But what's important for what I call the evangelists of this religion of whiteness is really to say, like, these are real things. This, is, this idea of race and of white supremacy is a real thing in the world. And that's the line of continuity that you can find all throughout the history of whiteness. Um, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and you also mentioned the, this religion of whiteness also found success by persuading its adherents that they, and not the people they oppressed, were the real victims. In 1692, colonial legislators in British Barbados complained that sundry of the Negroes and slaves of this island have been long preparing, contriving, conspiring, and designing a most horrid, bloody, damnable, and detestable rebellion, massacre, assassination, and destruction. So what happens when the powerful co-opt victimhood from the real victims, the victims of the powerful? What happens when that kind of strategy takes place? 
Well, it's a play for fear, right? So you're able to kind of harness the fear of people and to use that to say, you need to defend yourself because these people are coming for you. Um, we see it now in the manifestos of these mass shooters, right? Um, whether it's in New Zealand or Texas or Andrews Breivik, even like you have um, this real sense that whiteness is under threat. Today we call it the great replacement theory. But, you know, as I and others have pointed out, like this goes all the way back to the beginning. I mean, it is right there in the Barbados laws from the late 17th century where, you know, there were real uprisings because being enslaved was a terrible condition and people were fighting back against it. But the way that the plantation owners framed it was these are horrible, brutish people and we have to do everything we can to defend ourselves against them because they're coming for us. And it's that line, like the naturalization of whiteness, that really you can trace all the way through the 350 years of whiteness. You also point out that, um, let me get my note together here that I had in front of me, just one second. Oh, yeah, here you go. Uh, so you also write that perhaps most perverse of all was the charge of reverse racism, which emboldened critics of affirmative action and other race-conscious policies to claim that they, and not the policy's proponents, were the true heralds of racial equality. In 1986, Ronald Reagan went so far as to defend his opposition to minority hiring quotas by invoking Martin Luther King Jr. We want a colorblind society, Reagan declared, a society that, in the words of Dr. King, judges people not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. What makes that logic absurd to you? And more importantly, what does it say about the public and Reagan when such a thing could be openly stated and supported and not seen as an absurdity? Well, in the first place, it just blatantly misrepresents what Dr. King was about, right? So in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. gives an interview to Alex Haley, and he says, we need a $50 billion program of reparations in this country if we're going to address the harms that have been done by racism. And as part of that, he said, we need to have essentially special privileges for the people who have been harmed by racism. And he analogizes it to the GI Bill. He says, just as we've given special privileges to the people who have gone off and fought for this country in World War II, we need to have special privileges for the people who have been disadvantaged under Jim Crow and under these kind of structures of institutional racism. So part of it is just terrible, bad history. And, and one has to believe kind of willfully bad history, right? But on the other hand, this goes back to the question of white supremacy versus racism and whether it's important that racism predates or whether it's important that white supremacy as a phrase predates racism. Again, I don't want to go too far in putting too much pressure on the etymology, but I think what, what you saw happening was if you could say that the problem in America was not white supremacy, it was the problem of racism, by abstracting it that one level from white supremacy out to racism, then you could flip it around if you're a conservative again, or even, a, I mean, the Democrats did this too, a democratic politician. And you could say, oh, well, we can't give preferences to people based on their skin color because that would be racism. So it's a kind of, uh, it's a way of covering up the actual history of what was happening in this country. What was happening in this country for 350 years was not a kind of bland, generalized racism. It was a very specific program of white supremacy, and that's what needed addressing. And you also mentioned the impact of the Second World War. You write that this rejection of public endorsements of white supremacy happened at all, that it happened at all was thanks largely to the efforts of civil rights and anti-colonial activists, but the war itself also played a role, through, though the horrors of the Nazi regime had been more acute in their intensity than anything happening at the time in the U.S. or the U.K., they supplied an unflattering mirror that made it impossible to ignore the racism that was still prevalent in both countries. So like religion, the Second World War revealed the contradictions of whiteness, white supremacy, privilege, racism. How often do our expressed values here in the United States contradict that racism and does that make racism uh, why why does that why is racism still persistent why doesn't that lead to an end of racism when our expressed values seem to contradict racism at every turn uh you know the founding of the country had no problem with that contradiction right that contradiction was was present at the very beginning we i think we've learned a lot um over the last you know decade or so there's been a lot of writing about those contradictions that that pertain to the very beginning of the country and how the founding fathers did or did not kind of think about 
slavery um, vis-a-vis these ideals. Um, so in one sense, ignoring that contradiction or at least um, living with it is a very old American tradition. Um, you know, I think at some level, like racism worked, which is an unfortunate thing to say. Um, it offered benefits to the upper classes who were able to use these divide and conquer strategies. It offered what Du Bois called psychological wages to people who were not actually making more money, but could think of themselves as being better than someone else because of the color of their skin. Um, I don't want to give the impression that it was, you know, omnipotent or, or a totalizing fact because it certainly wasn't that. Um, but it was, you know, it was successful enough to co-opt all of these laws and institutions and norms that we have um, and, and to basically kind of keep structures the way they were. People, you know, some people liked having those privileges and, and they managed to find ways to keep them. And they're still finding ways to keep them, frankly. You mentioned a magazine, Race Trader, and uh, how that kind of set this tone for uh, just the anti-whiteness, being very critical of whiteness. And you're right, so that magazine came out in, I think you said the 60s, I believe that came out. Is that correct? No, that was in 92. No, that was oh, in 92. 90. Okay. So, but then yeah. you're right that by the mid-2000s, though, the colorblind ideological system had become so successful that it managed to you know, do all sorts of intense work. And it just led to this whole concept of uh, overwhelming numbers of white people in corporate boardrooms, for instance, or in the media and tech industries fr- from much censure. So, so why is disgust, why is disgust at white, uh, whiteness, why is that on its own not revolutionary? Why didn't that have the impact that, it sh- that people had hoped it would have? Well, look, I, I give the editors of Race Trader a lot of credit. Um, Noel Ignatieff was one of them. He wrote you know, a really interesting book called How the Irish Became White. They did really interesting work. I don't want to take anything away from that. But I do think you know, one of their ideas that they talk about in the very first issue was that whiteness was – they talked about whiteness as needing unanim- unanimity, that sort of everyone had to buy into it. And the idea was that it was this sort of fragile state of affairs. And I think their great hero was John Brown. And they sort of had this idea that if you could have targeted um, – a number of kind of targeted raids, you know, analogically, not violent raids like John Brown's, but if you could really shake the edifice of whiteness, then it would all come crumbling down. And that part of it, I think, was a little bit naive because I don't think whiteness was able to survive for 300 years by being fragile. It was actually very tactically uh, flexible and supple and was able to kind of maneuver in ways to keep its power. And, uh, you know, frankly, like the colorblind, this kind of regime or era of colorblind racism was one of the ways in which it did it. It basically said, we're not going to talk about race anymore, like, you know, in deference to the civil rights movement, but we're going to go ahead and accept all of the benefits and the advantages that have piled up for us over these 350 years. So we can still keep the benefits of whiteness without having to talk about it very much. You also mentioned that in the decades following the civil rights movement, intellectuals and activists of color continued to develop the W.E.B. Du Boisian intellectual tradition that understood whiteness as an implement of social domination. In the 80s and 90s, a group of legal scholars that included Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's been on our show in the past, Cheryl Harris and Richard Delgado, produced a body of research that became known as critical race theory, which was, in Bell's words, ideologically committed to the struggle against racism, particularly as institutionalized in and by law. Now, the right is very upset over critical race theory, with some Republican state governors banning it at state-funded universities. The Biden administration has announced that they would restart the program of funding the teaching of critical race theory, including training for federal employees and contractors. Why are conservatives opposed to critical race theory being taught in universities, and why should federal employees be trained in critical race theory? Uh, you know, I think it's a continuation of the same same politics, right? So if you look at the complaints about critical race theory from the right, which I should say have no bearing on the actual body of scholarship that's being done, I mean, just zero. Um, what people often will say is, oh, you're a critical race theory. You're the real racist. 
you're the one who's introducing race into the conversation. So it's exactly in line with that quote from Ronald Reagan that you put in earlier, or what Scalia said, oh, you want to talk about race when it comes to hiring practices? Well, then you're the real racist here, not me. I'm not the real racist. I, I believe in colorblind America. We don't, we don't see race here. Um, and again, that strategy has worked, right? I mean, that strategy has worked. I mean, you have to remember Ronald Reagan, uh, when he, he said that, I think in 1986, um, he started his campaign in 1980 in, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was the site of an awful um, racist crime. And there was no accident about that. No one's deceived about why, why he did that. So it's this kind of double game that gets played where on the explicit uh, superficial level, we say, no, 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 we don't want to talk about race at all. Meanwhile, on the implicit level, uh, you're very much kind of cultivating this sense of white privilege and white grievance. So just a couple more questions for you. You write, as with climate change, however, the only thing more difficult than such an effort in fighting it would be trying to live with the alternative. Whiteness may seem inevitable and implacable, and Toni Morrison surely had it right when she said that the world will not become unracialized by assertion to wake up tomorrow and decide I'm no longer white wouldn't help no one. Even so, after 350 years, it remains the case, as historian Neil er- Nell Irvin painter argues that whiteness is an idea not a fact not alone and not without much work to repair the damage done in its name it still must be possible to change our minds how do we change that idea how can we change our minds uh it's a great question and i part of the reason why i wrote this essay was because i was hoping some people could tell me (laughs) um you know i think um as I was saying earlier, one question I had um, was, which direction are we even heading? Are we heading to a world in which whiteness is this sort of innocuous identity um, alongside all sorts of other identities one might have? Or do we really think that the goal is to kind of rob it of any sort of salience? And as I say in the essay, you know, kind of push it into obsolescence. Um, I definitely come down on the latter side of the equation how that happens is a difficult question. But, you know, I mean, I think the census is kind of an interesting thing to think about, right? So until 2000, as I, as I was saying earlier, the census forced every person in this country to say what race they were. Every 10 years, you had to pick one to five races. Um, and one of the things I didn't get into the essay, but if you actually go back and look at the history of the census since the beginning, the only single question that has been asked of every single person throughout history is what race they are. At various times, you know, they would ask like the head of household for his age, or they would ask, um, you know, about names or whatever. But the one salient fact that the government needed to know about every single person was their race. And this of course had to do with the apportionment of districts and the three fifths compromise and all that. Um, But there's a way in which that process of like sort of, government racialization encourages people to think about themselves in racial terms. Same thing happens in political polls, right? So we have political polls that report, you know, racial categories. We should think, I think, critically about that. I'm not saying we should stop that practice necessarily, but we should think critically about what is this doing? On the one hand, it might be worth saying, what do people who identify as white think about X, Y, or Z? On the other hand, that might be a way of kind of increasing racial polarization um, and, encouraging people to think about themselves in racial terms. Um, you know, certainly I think like a lot of people I was sort of living in politics land for the last um, four years and reading a lot of polling and stuff. And there's just not that much, it, it doesn't appear to me that there's that much kind of critical self-reflection about the ways in which these ra- racial categories might actually contribute to some of the issues that we've been talking about. I was a census worker at one time and the question that I hate, hated to ask was who is the head of household, because that's when you found out, for instance, if this person happened to be a writer for World Socialist Weekly, who said that they did not like the term head of household and wanted to question that whole framework. So, yeah, it was a very odd experience. i got one last question for you. We've been speaking with freelance writer and editor Robert P. Baird, who wrote the Guardian article, The Invention of Whiteness, The Long History of a Dangerous Idea. You can follow Robert on Twitter at Bobby Baird. That's B-A-I-R-D. And you can find out more about Robert at his website, robertpbaird.com. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise we, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, might hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response 
considering the inevitable recognition of the contradiction between white supremacy, privilege, whiteness, racism, and democracy, what happens when the obstacle of democracy instead of religion gets in the way of white supremacy? In the past, white supremacy simply changed the law to make it legal and enforced by law enforcement and the violence of police. Are we heading to an unavoidable collision between white supremacy and democracy? And will capital, capitalism be on democracy side or white supremacy side? I think uh, the answer is probably yes, that we're, there's a kind of inevitable conflict coming up. But I think it's also worth keeping in mind that the baseline presumption of democracy is that every human being has an equal amount of dignity um, in the political realm. And I think the same thing underlies the anti-white supremacy case, that this whole idea of whiteness as white supremacy is fundamentally a lie, and it's always been a lie. So as successful as whiteness has been throughout history, we also have to remember the flip side, that in actual real life, people always live their lives. There are people who rejected this all the time. Um, many of them, of course, people who are not white, but also people who were white. And I just think that if you can, you know, the, the real foundation for both of these challenges, both democracy and the challenge of white supremacy, is the recognition of equal dignity for all human beings. But if uh, whiteness has a democracy problem, does that mean that it's, we're coming down to a conflict between capitalism and democracy? Yeah. I think we are. I mean, I, I think because, uh, you know, to put it frankly, both the people who have capital and the people who um, enjoy white privilege, many of whom are the same people, are not eager to give that up. But they've never been eager to give that up. That's never been the case. And so, you know, it really is um, a matter, I think, of helping people understand exactly what kind of game is being played here and forcing them to decide at some level, like, whose side are you on? You know, are you going to align yourself with these people who are playing divide and conquer and who are exploiting these racial divisions um, in order to get the kind of tax breaks and everything that they want? Or are do you want to live in a world where, you know, as many people say, at least, we are all born at least with some semblance of equality of opportunity starting out? Um, and I think that that is a very hard question. And I think it's easy for us all to fall back on the nostrums and the chestnuts um, but, you know, it's something that we all have to really kind of bring to the fore and keep forcing um, people to confront honestly. And that's an answer from hell for a question from hell. Robert, <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. This is spectacular writing. This is really an interesting article, and it's a long read over The Guardian. It's worth every minute. Uh, freelance writer and editor Robert P. Baird wrote The Guardian article, The Invention of Whiteness, The Long History of a Dangerous Idea. Follow Robert on Twitter at Bobby Baird and find out more about Robert at his website, robertpbaird.com. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. And if you liked what you just heard, you liked what Robert uh, Barrett had to say about whiteness, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all of our merchandise or you can support us by subscribing our week to our the weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Just please Remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is what medieval trade is coming back soon? And Garrett S. says hauling corpses around in a trolley while yelling, bring out your dead. <laughs> okay. That was a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John K. Gong farmer, the person who cleans the outhouse. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> uh, Lisa B. Did, vill did Village Idiot ever really leave, or are we at peak market saturation now? <laughs> Zach N. Uh, defenestration. Sweet! Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Nathan N. Uh, come to say Gong Farmer, but John beat me to it. <laughs> uh, Fabio L. Serfdom, but this time the liege lord is an algorithm owned by a multinational finance company. <laughs> nice! <laughs> what medieval trade is coming back soon? Adam A. I don't know, but one thing is certain, with poor whites trying to cast themselves as Watt Tyler, 
while begrudging people of color the right to the same role, it is pretty clear that overcoming racism is without question the first step toward a real revolution. Okay. <laughs> serious one. Um, Bradley R., CBD Guildmaster. <laughs> there you go. Now we're back on yeah. track. <laughs> and last, Dan K., Grand Inquisitor. <laughs> oh, man. That made me cough. We'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is what medieval trade is coming back soon? What medieval trade is coming back soon? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of the This Is Hell swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history, May 3rd, 1972, 49 years ago today, Monday. The members of the Scottish rock band Stone the Crows, what a weird name for a band. The member of the Scottish rock band Stone the Crows thought their future was looking bright. And it turns out, for one of them, their future was far too bright. Recently taken on as clients by Peter Grant, who also managed Led Zeppelin, Stone the Crows had a powerful lead singer in Maggie Bell and a talented 27-year-old guitarist named Les Harvey, who had already made a bit of a name for himself in his older brother's band, the so-called Sensational Alex Harvey Band, which never broke big in the United States but had a devoted following in the UK. On this day, Stone the Crows arrived in the Welsh coastal town of Swansea to play a gig at the Top Rank Club. As the band was setting up for soundcheck, Les Harvey went to a mic stand. Unfortunately, went to move a mic stand. Unfortunately, the microphone was connected to an amp system, which an incompetent stagehand and failed to ground properly, Harvey received a massive dose of electricity that killed him instantly, making him a member of the 27 Club, an inf- infamous list of pop musicians and artists who all died at the age of 27, including such names as Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Brian Jones, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse, as well as bluesman Robert Johnson, artist Jean-Michel Basquiat, Pigpen of the Grateful Dead, Al Wilson of Canned Heat, Peter Ham of Badfinger, Dave Alexander of the Stooges, and on and on and on. 27. The age the best athletes supposedly reach their peak is the age some of the best musicians meet their tragic end. After losing Harvey, Stone the Crows managed to stay together only long enough to record one last album with a new guitarist Jimmy McCullough before breaking up McCullough would then go on to enjoy a few years of success with Paul McCartney and Wings before himself dying of a morphine overdose at the age of 27 nope guess again 26 so there is something worse than being in Paul McCartney's wings. Stone the Crows also had a semi-hit with a song called Penicillin Blues, which you might think is timely given the fact that we are all getting vaccinated against a deadly virus, so maybe we should play it. But it turns out Penicillin Blues is not about being injected with the drug as much as it is a different kind of injection that happens when two or more people love each other very much. In Rotten History, May 6th, 1882, 139 years ago, this Thursday, President Chester A. Arthur laid the capstone on a long-growing edifice of racist anti-Asian sentiment by signing into law the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first major U.S. legislation designed to block immigration by people of a specific nationality. The first! It didn't come until 1882. The idea of excluding people based on race is not an old idea, but a new one. If there's one thing you take away from today's show, I hope it is that racism is a relatively new phenomenon invented by wealthy people who want no or low-wage labor. Resentment against Chinese immigrants had been growing for years, especially in California, where their presence had been resented by white laborers competing with them for work in the gold mines, which may have been the first and last time anyone was ever jealous of someone working in a mine. In western cities like San Francisco, the Chinese immigrants had soon found themselves relegated to menial and undesirable jobs, and 
had begun to resist their treatment, and mining was not deemed menial or undesirable work, despite the fact that mining is menial and undesirable work. As white resentment threatened to spill into violence, President Arthur hoped that signing the new anti-immigrant law would help pacify the situation while winning Western votes for the Republican Party, because nothing pacifies a mob like excluding an entire race of people. The act he signed, which also barred Chinese immigrants already present in the United States from gaining citizenship, had a sunset clause specifying a 10-year limit. But in later decades, the exclusion law would repeatedly be extended and entry to the United States by immigrants from China would be heavily restricted until 1843, over 60 years later. After a dozen years of Chinese fighting a war with Japan, which had created huge numbers of war refugees fleeing the Japanese invasion. So all it took to end the Chinese Exclusion Act was a world war. Who knows? Maybe a pandemic can stop the current state of institutional legal racism in the United States. Probably not. But it could. Right? Maybe? Okay. No. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Jess, please tell us what's happening on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Tomorrow on Tuesday, we'll be talking to Trevor Griffey on his article, A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching, for the American Association of University Professors website. Yeah, that's a really, really depressing situation, what's happening with college professors and uh, educators at universities around the country. So we'll be discussing that tomorrow. What about Wednesday? We're still working on it, but we have Thursday books. Okay. Um, so on Thursday, we're talking to Yannick Giovanni Marshall on his op-ed, Totalitarianism at 38th in Chicago, a Minnesotan lie for Al Jazeera English, plus a moment of truth from De- Jeff Dorchin. And Yannick has been on before. You can find our past interview with him by going to our website and searching on his last name, Marshall. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Jess for producing. Thanks to our guest today, Robert Baird. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest, and thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure, which listeners in the UK will need this coming bank holiday weekend, commemorating VE Day is spinach. And man, I was so happy on Sunday morning when I woke up with a hangover because I have not had a hangover in, I think, about 12, 15 years, and I started fearing the fact that Maybe I would no longer get that punishment that you should get for over-drinking. I was very frightened of it until Sunday morning when I woke up with a nasty hangover and I couldn't be happier. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>